Welcome to the seventh episode of the Sirens of Scream, the geek podcast that proves sometimes dead is better. I'm Jackie DeVore, and I'm here with Sierra Halk. Hello. And Melissa Megan. Hello. And ladies, what's going on with you? Have you seen the uh, Preacher finale yet? I'm way behind. Oh. I'm a bad, bad nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did see it. We kind of marathoned a few episodes. I think it was last week. Um, because yeah. once I realized that the uh, finale had aired, I didn't want to be spoiled on it. So... Like, I gotta hurry up and watch everything right now. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much exactly what, what went on over here. It was like, oh, oh, we were like four episodes behind. Let's get through this. But the finale was pretty awesome, I think. The story kind of slowed down toward the end of the season, but the finale brought it all back around, in my opinion. See, I almost felt different. I, I almost felt the opposite. I felt like the last like two or three episodes, all of a sudden the story picked up speed really fast. Like yeah. it, it felt to me like they were sort of prepping you on characters for a good part of the season. And then all of a sudden it was like, now this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And this is going to happen. Everything just started, yeah. you know, rolling I, downhill. I could see that. Yeah. And how they um, how they did Cass's makeup toward the end there was incredible. Yeah. I must say. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's I, I. It once once you see cast start getting like really torn apart, it's like all right. Now we're getting into the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Sh- shit's sure. about to get really deep, and I'm <laughs> I'm excited because now they're actually they're gonna you know obviously season two is gonna start getting into the comic book story. So mm-hmm. yeah, it seems that way. I was saying that I I thought it was an interesting uh, take on it to decide to take a comic book series that already has such a huge amount of material and rather than try to tackle that material, actually add more to it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. that's a really big undertaking. It seemed like they were adding some exposition for the television crowd versus the comic crowd, because maybe we ingest media a little differently. You know, I just, about two days ago, I listened to one of all of our favorite podcasts, Nerdist um, podcast, Mm -hmm. and Seth Rogen was on there, and he was talking about his work with Preacher. And what he was saying was that the a lot of the material and the themes that are covered in Preacher are covered very, like, in your face and very no beating around the bush, no softening of anything. And he felt like a lot of those themes today would not be well received that way. Uh-huh. So he right. almost he almost had to like cushion people and prepare them for what was coming by introducing them to the characters and giving them time to like feel invested in these people before you start making them do insane things that are going to scare the shit out of you. Well, that makes me really excited for the later seasons then. Yeah. That's that sounds like it's going to be fun after Make, this season. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Makes yeah, a lot of sense. Does. Yeah. That's a hard world to get into, I think. <laughs> so what's going on with you, Sarah, you know, other than your glorious blue hair? I have brand new blue hair because I want to be as much of a mermaid as possible. <laughs> That's um, very pretty. <laughs> uh, not so much. I mean, I just got back from a family vacation down in Oregon. Cool. Um, so going, driving through Oregon on a road trip and seeing all like weird roadside attractions was pretty fun. Wait, you're Almost. in Washington, right? Yeah, I'm up in Seattle. It's funny because if I were to say I went to Oregon on a family trip, it would sound like a really big family big trip. endeavor but yeah. it doesn't sound like that when you say it <laughs> no i just popped down there um my family lives in bend and so we drove through um went through portland and um we're this close to having time to go to a place called the peterson rock garden right outside of bend which is this really cool um attraction that this guy like he just collected a bunch of rocks and then made all these little towns and cities out of them and like little 
uh, scaled down monuments and things, and it's just bizarre. And That's it's, cool. Like, quintessential, like weird roadside attraction kind of thing you expect from Oregon. Um, and of course, there's like weird peacocks that just like hang out there and attack people. That's uh, there's a place that's similar to that in Miami, uh, the Coral Castle. There's a guy like I think it was in the mm. 1920s built this entire castle made out of coral rock without you know any machinery. So it's kind of that's a mystery awesome. how he actually did it. Oh, God bless the weirdos who just like, <laughs> right? I just, I'm, I'm, I really like weirdos. rocks, so I'm just going to collect them and I'm going to make a little city for people <laughs> to come and visit. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So that was my weekend. Well, cool. You guys want to jump into what we're loving now? Yeah. Let's do it. Actually, uh, mine is pretty related to that. So the, the thing that I want to recommend this week is called Atlas Obscura. And it's a website that um, catalogs weird, kind of underground, off the beaten path attractions that you wouldn't normally see uh, advertised as like a a tourist attraction. But um, it's really fun to go on and see what's around your town that you maybe didn't even know about. And uh, whenever you're going to a new place, kind of check there just so you don't miss any hidden gems. And or check Pokemon Go stops because oh for I mean, sure yeah <laughs> some weird things have been popping because up priorities. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so before we went down to Bend, I checked to see what was around that maybe I hadn't been to before, and also it was the first time that uh, my boyfriend Tucker was going down there, so I wanted to you know impress him a little bit with Oregon because he hasn't really been there before. Um, and we found this really weird town. Uh, it is called Antelope, Oregon, in kind of northern central Oregon. And there's this strange uh, metal plaque in the middle of this town, and it reads, Dedicated to those of this community who throughout the Rajneesh invasion and occupation of 1981 to 1985 remained, resisted, and remembered. Mm. And the history behind that is that in the 80s, um, a bunch of these weird cultists started moving around, around like outside of the town. Um, until there were like thousands of these weird people who only wore red. Um, and they started to uh, overthrow the town because, you know, they ran out of room. So they started pushing in. And there was this conspiracy where the cult uh, tried to poison the city with salmonella so that they could overthrow it and take it over. Um, and so in those couple of years, they they did. They succeeded because the town was super small. So it wasn't easy to or it wasn't hard to outnumber them. And then, That's crazy. I know, it's crazy. And then, of course, you know, the government found out that they were, like, trying to poison people. So the uh, cult leader fled, um, and and then the cult just kind of disappeared. Uh, and the the city, you know, all the townspeople who remained through that decided, okay, well, we're going to take our town back. And uh, while the cult was there, they, um, they changed the name of it to Rajneesh, who was the name of their cult leader. And as it turned out, the uh, post office never even put through the red, the whatever they needed to file to change the name. So once the cult all disappeared, they didn't even have to do anything. It was still just named Antelope. <laughs> That's and, handy. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. Like one person was like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. <laughs> uh, and then all these, you know, cultists went away and everything went back to normal. Um, so we drove through that town. And to be honest, it wasn't super spectacular because it was just this small kind of rural um, uh Oregon town. Um, but to know the history behind it was super cool. And I mentioned it to my family. Um, my dad grew up in, in bed. So he was like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the cold town. You know, they, they, they were <laughs> just on the like red. it's an everyday yeah. thing. <laughs> I'm like, why did you never mention this? It's right? like, yeah, maybe like an hour north of Bend or so. And he's just like, oh, yeah, that happened in the 80s. And then everything was fine. Just the kind of thing that happens in Oregon. I love it. Your dad's yes. like, I'm cool. I know this stuff. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't tell anything. <laughs> like, oh, you don't know? Because <laughs> my, uh, my grandma, his mom works at the hospital in, like, the administration kind of section. Um, and so in the 80s when all these people were poisoned, apparently a bunch of them got brought down to Bend. And he was like, oh, yeah, we treated some of those people. <laughs> like, you know, they were around. This is something that happened. <laughs> That's so funny. So you should absolutely go and check out Atlas Obscura. And I think they're working a lot harder to put together events and things around. Like, I've, I've joined their email list, and they've been sending a lot of stuff out about, like, walking tours and cool little classes that you can take, too. So I would absolutely recommend going there because it's a lot of cool stuff that you just wouldn't even find. History is so much more fun when it's creepy and oh, yeah. odd, right? Absolutely. For sure. <laughs> I wish they would, like, in school, they would just give you a choice for history class. Like, would you like to read about... War history, or would you like to read about spooky town history? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or would you like to read about serial killer history? <laughs> Maybe there could just be like a creepy history class. Yeah. I would so take that class. Or they yeah. could just trick kids into learning history through all of these cool stories. Right? Yeah, I would pay attention so much more in class yeah. if the cool stories were involved. Tell it as if it were a ghost story. Yeah. And like, what would these ghosts say about this war that they fought? I'm right. listening. But, like, <laughs> the professors had the flashlight below the chin and oh, all yeah. like, shining up like, back in the day, this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> On a night just like this. <laughs> just fog machine in the classroom. <laughs> yeah. Although that whole hip-hop musical history lesson seems to be oh, popular yeah. these days. True. Maybe this is the next best thing. We gotta get in on this. We should start the trend. Buckle, did you have another uh, recommendation this week? That was all I came up with this week. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot there. Yeah, I had a, a wreck and a story. So Cool. You did, some, you you did some real life research for that. So Yeah, I did. Counts. I'm going a little bit comic book crazy this week because that's what I've been doing lately is trying to catch up on all the comics that I'm missing. So the first one I recommend is called Lady Killer. And it is a series from Dark Horse Comics. It's written by Joelle Jones and the art is by Joelle Jones. Some of the stories are also written by uh, Jamie Rich. Uh, if you've never seen Joelle Jones artwork, it's really, really cool. Very sketchy, very line heavy. Lady Killer is a, so there's an entire first arc that's already been printed. It's been printed twice because I don't think they expected it to be quite as popular as it was. Um, it came out and people went crazy over it and you very quickly you couldn't find any of them if you were buying them in print so they put them out again and the reason part of the reason i want to talk about this is because lady killer 2 just came out which is a whole brand new arc with the same character so you can read the entire first arc and get caught up it's about a woman named josie Schuler, very classic 1960s homemaker wife she's got little kids at home um it's got this really nice like kind of stepford wives style about it where she's always got these perfect like pink flouncy dresses on, little A-line dresses. And she's always, her hair is always perfect and she's wearing her pearls. And her mother-in-law lives with her family as well, who, if I remember correctly, I think she's like Russian or something. She's this grumpy old lady who doesn't speak English. And she just sort of sits at the kitchen table grumbling at Josie all the time. The cool thing about this is that Josie is actually a ruthless killer for hire. She's an assassin. Cool. She hides her, her career somehow from her family. So she's constantly like, I've got to go get milk. And she goes to the store and then she just like brutally murders people. <laughs> kind of like in a Dexter style. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And and the artwork is very, uh, it's very brutal. There's just like pages with just blood spattered everywhere. And she just like <laughs> chops people up and it's um, awesome. 
yeah, she's pretty badass. And uh, I fell in love with this story really quickly. And there's this whole kind of spy thing going on where she's got these other assassins that she knows and she's obviously got some kind of tumultuous history with and they're kind of frenemies, you know, and um, you start to meet some of the other people who are working the same jobs that she is. And yeah, she's just trying to survive and she's trying to keep her family safe, but she also just can't stop killing because she really likes being a killer. <laughs> she's like, Fair enough. She's like, I'm totally going to quit one day. I am. <laughs> stop anytime I want to. Yep. So yeah, that's Lady Killer, and it's really super fun and awesome. Uh, I don't think I've ever read a... It's actually more called a a dark comedy than it is referred to as a horror. I see it referred to as a dark comedy because it does have a really fun sense of humor to it. I've never seen one like this that's done in this kind of like 1960s June Cleaver style with blood and guts everywhere. (laughs) That sounds like a fun combination, though. It is. It's really fun. It's really awesome. And yeah, so Lady Killer uh, number, Lady Killer 2, which is a little confusing in comic books because usually it's like, you know, you've got number one, number two, number three. They just put out the new arc of Lady Killer and it's called Lady Killer 2. So you can get... So you can read that without being confused. Yeah. So you can read like the entire first arc is just called Lady Killer. And then the second one is Lady Killer 2. They've just started a whole new story with Josie Schuler, And now she's apparently moved her business to Cocoa Beach, Florida. So she just like picked up her family and maybe she ran out of people to kill <laughs> her old hometown. <laughs> That's right around the corner from the uh, Kennedy Space Center. Maybe there'll be some astronaut related adventures in there. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> So that's my first one. My second one is also a comic book. um, And this one is a little bit of a lead up to our next episode where we're going to talk about Harrow County. There is a writer named Cullen Bunn who writes Harrow County. And he also writes this book I want to talk about today called Death Follows. Cullen Bunn is pretty big right now in comic books. He's doing everything. He's writing like hero comics. He's writing everything. Um, But I think he excels at horror and the artist on this is uh, A.C. Zamudio, who I'm not all that familiar with, but it doesn't matter because it's awesome. Death Follows is a trade paperback, which means you can buy it in a big chunk and read the entire thing. And it's a pretty quick read. Um, there's not a lot of it there. It actually, I believe, was originally a novel. It was a, a printed material from Colin Bunn. It was a prose piece, a novel, and they took it and they, and they put it into this comic book form. So it's about a focused on a little girl named Birdie. I want to say she's around like 10 to 12 years old. She lives with her family on a farm and they're really struggling. Her dad's, you know, his health is going down. They're having a hard time keeping the farm up and maintaining everything. And this guy shows up one day, just comes sauntering up to their farm and says, hey, you know, I don't have anywhere to live right now. Do you guys need some help? Like, if you want to hire me, I can help you around the farm. And of course, he's creepy looking. He's got like gnarly teeth and like his big hat, you can't see his eyes. He's always just peering out underneath oh. this big scary hat. And he's got like long shaggy hair and he's really tall and gangly. And her dad accepts and brings him on. And she really feels very uneasy about the guy right away. And she tries to talk her dad out of it. And he's not hearing it. So and he's brings- like, no, he clearly looks like he's got this friendly neighborly vibe right. here. <laughs> good much him. Right. It's, um, yeah, and, you know, you feel bad because her dad is, I think it's arthritis that he's, he's, he's like having a lot of pain in his hands and you feel bad. You're like, oh man, like he can't do this hard work anymore. And the kids want, you know, they want their dad to be happy and they want him to, to be okay. And so they agree, not that they had a lot of choice because they're kids, but um, <laughs> it's her and her little sister as well. So this guy basically 
<laughs> I don't want to say too much because it's not a very long book, but the way that the description on the book, um, for, it's also from Dark Horse Comics, by the way, the way that the description says, wherever the hired man goes, the dead grow restless, which is exactly what happens. Everything that's dead grows very restless around this guy. <laughs> so very quickly, shit gets really weird on their farm and really scary. Um, and I found this book particularly unsettling because not just with dead things moving around, which is creepy, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it touches on some heavy themes of like the kids having to recognize their parents' mortality and, you know, how their lives could change if their parents, the mother's also pregnant, by the way. So she's like unable to help. She's really pregnant. And, you know, the kids are realizing like how, how, and they're also realizing that they're having to grow up really fast. The older daughter, Birdie, she's the one that's going to have to be helping her mom now and like helping to raise the baby. And um, how old is she? I can't remember. I want to say she's like 10 or 11. Okay. Um, and then she's got a younger sister and then her mom's gigantic baby belly. And then you've also got these really nice themes of like of sisterhood. You know, these two sisters are trying to look out for each other. The older one is much more suspicious and, and cautious and paranoid. And the younger sister is very kind of carefree and just, whoa, whatever. You know, she's like, this guy's cool. He's got weird stuff, you know, I'm just going to hang out and see what he has and mess around in his space. And she's just very, she doesn't get it. You know, she's not picking up on the crazy vibes from him. It, it gets really intense really fast. And by the end of the book, I was crying a little bit. <laughs> so, but it's, it's an, it's a really incredible book. And when I picked it up to read it, I didn't expect it to be quite as, as a much of a hard hitting book as it was. That's called Death Follows. And you should read it because it won't make you feel happy. <laughs> You've been <laughs> warned. Give you all the feels. I'm such a good salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last recommendation is I actually want to talk about an artist named Abigail Larson. And part of why I want to talk about her is because there's currently a Twitter movement going on. Um, a hashtag that is called hashtag visible women. And the important thing to know about this is although it's visible women, it is it is a binary hashtag. So anyone who is a woman or is anything in between or anything on any given day, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it, it is an all encompassing hashtag. And the idea is to give notice and uh, identification to various artists and creators out there who are not maybe not in the spotlight. It's a place for anybody who feels like they fall into this space and they want to be recognized a little bit more. They can throw up a link, some of their artwork. And the hashtag itself has kind of become like a, a tum like an awesome Tumblr page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in my yeah. Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. No, I've seen so much like good conversation and supportive comments going back and forth because of this hashtag and I found so many cool new artists to follow. <laughs> yeah, concept artists, video game artists, comic book artists, writers, just everything. Yeah, it's been an, an incredible little movement, I want to say, mm -hmm. there. But yeah, uh, lending recognition to these ladies that just don't get what they deserve there. Yeah, and it's just kind of blowing my mind how many incredible artists there are out there that I've never seen or heard of before. It's yeah. like, a, it's a rabbit hole. You just fall down. I I just added a whole nother column. I, I told you guys earlier, I, I added a column in my tweet deck just for that hashtag now, just so I can mm -hmm. constantly look at it and make sure I'm not missing something awesome. That's awesome. That's really cool. That's a, definitely an industry that tends to repress women a lot and not lift them up and say, hey, this is the cool artist behind all of those awesome things you love. So 
I'm glad to see that going on. Yeah, and I think it's great because it allows the artists to put themselves out there in whatever way they want to be recognized. You know, it's like, like I said, it is binary. So you have a lot of, um, you have a lot of uh, people who identify maybe as pansexual or, you know, various gender identities in here who feel like they might not be able to put their, um, their stuff into the mainstream art world somewhere. They might feel uncomfortable or nervous about throwing themselves out there and being, you know, honest about who they are and what they want to create. So this is kind of a a really great kind of like online safe space for that to happen. I wanted to focus just on Abigail Larson. She's one of the artists that I found. I did tweet this out very quickly earlier this week to our uh, Sirens Twitter, and she does illustrations. And I've never heard of her before, but I saw that she did a, um, a cover for Penny Dreadful number one, a comic book series, and she's done a cover for Edward Scissorhands comic book series. And her when art I s- is incredible. Yeah, when I saw that Penny Dreadful cover, I recognized it. Like, oh, that's her? I know her. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, this kind of like very spindly, really clean artwork, but it's got this a lot of texture to it and a lot of depth and um, definitely a very gothic, romantic horror style. It feels very gothic, lots of lots of devils and witches and spooky forests and yeah kind of fairy tale inspired looking like Guillermo del Toro fairy tale kind of R.L. Stein like mashup thing happening <laughs> that's a good way to describe it I would say <laughs> I hate to make like I, I always feel like when I say things like that about artists that I'm making you know making it sound like they're derivative and it's not at all it's very unique and original but it kind of makes me think of all those things mashed together in this creepy little world yeah um, she's got a very very unique, but also very recognizable style. I think now if I saw anything from hers anywhere else, I would know what it was. And I also discovered that she makes a coloring book, which I'm totally ordering tonight. Ooh. It's Alice's Wonderfilled Adventures, a curious coloring book. I'm going to need the link to that. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now at Amazon for 10 bucks, and it is mine. <laughs> definitely going to need the link to that. <laughs> Abigail Larson. You should definitely check her out. She is... At Abigail underscore Larson on Twitter. Easy to remember. Yeah, that's it. That's what I got. Well, cool. And for my recommendations this week, I've got a couple of them. Uh, One of them is an Etsy shop. And uh, I always feel a little bit weird about recommending an Etsy shop because it's a kind of just a strange thing to throw out there. But at the same time, it is uh, promoting uh, artists who sell their own work. So... I'm on board with that as well. This one, though, is called uh, Seventh Skin. And basically, this artist draws up temporary tattoos and uh, sells them as, uh, well, temporary tattoos you can put on yourself. And they range from, you know, little tiny little things that you can put on yourself or gigantic chest and back pieces. And they pretty much all have either a geeky or horror theme to them. So if you are ever looking for, like, a Bride of Frankenstein temporary tattoo or, you know, the Sailor Moon Luna symbol on your forehead, that kind of thing. She's got you covered. Um, they're, I mean, they're really well priced for what they are and it comes with tips for keeping them on. They're very vibrant and gorgeous. Uh, I'm actually gonna spoil something for my best friend here and say that she's gonna get some in her birthday package. (coughs) (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) so this is really cool. It's called Seven Skin on Etsy. Of course, we'll post a link to it. Uh, the drawings here are, are gorgeous. There's a a Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice that I particularly love and a Sanderson Sisters that looks gorgeous. It says, I put a spell on you across it. Um, in general, if you're into some geeky stuff or you're into some spooky stuff, you can find something here you're going to love. 
And the other one is a game. It didn't just come out, but I know that a lot of people are going to uh, be just now getting into it because it was on sale recently on Steam and a couple other uh, platforms. It's called Neverending Nightmares, and it's an indie horror game. And I think I just heard Sierra gasp there. Yeah, I love that game. <laughs> yeah, have you been playing it? Uh, I played through it, and um, I want to play it again because I think it has a couple of different types of endings that you can yeah, get it, through. It has four different endings, mm-hmm. is what I've read. And it's um, it's a pretty strange game. It's something that I've seen a lot of people post some questionable reviews about, Um specifically because they were expecting like pop out of nowhere chase you down destroy you kind of horror sort of thing like the kind of thing you can fight back and a lot of adventure uh but what it is is basically a walking simulator and it's based around the developers uh issues with uh OCD and depression and it's like the title says you're basically waking up constantly to nightmares and wandering around this creepy spooky house with this incredible art style it's very very sketchy like little tiny lines all over the place and must have taken him forever to make all these backgrounds um it kind of reminds me of like an edgar edward gory yeah that's exactly what i was thinking of yeah Yeah. edward gory but you're basically dreaming that uh your sister is dead and you keep finding uh hints and clues about your sister and what's going on in this house and yourself and all this weird stuff and you keep seeing all these shadows uh cross you all these weird things pop up here and there and uh one thing i've noticed is that the deeper you get into it the more weird shit pops up in the background that if you're not really paying attention you might not notice like a very subtle skull pattern on a wallpaper or like the grandfather clock has um, an executioner coming out and chopping somebody's head off instead of, you know, little birds or some shit. If you are trying to run to get away from something, suddenly you're breathing really heavily and slowing down. And that really frustrates the, uh, the user in a lot of cases, but this is intentional from the developers uh, to express how he feels with uh, asthma. So you're trying to run away from all these, you're trying to run away from the actual nightmares, but if you're asthmatic, that kind of lends another sense of fear to it. Like you just can't get away. So you're basically screaming and nobody's hearing you kind of situation. Um, One thing that I really, really found interesting about it was the sound. The sound design in it, it actually, I tried to find a a screen cap from what it says at the very beginning of the game, but it tells you that they suggest using headphones because they developed a uh, specific sound design that works only with headphones and not with uh, desktop speakers. And it's... If you're listening to it on headphones, you can hear this really, really eerie uh, stuff going on in all kinds of directions. And some of it is really subtle. Some of it, like, will come on slow, like like a migraine, and suddenly it's very tense because this uh, music has built up in the background that you didn't even notice because you were wrapped up in something else. It's that atmospheric. Um, but... The way they've done the sound design, I've never seen another game do it like this, and I really hope it becomes a staple in other horror games, if not horror movies would be way cool for it. Uh, I mean, you'll hear little, little tiny pins dropping here and there, little tiny clinging behind you or off to the side of you, and you're trying to go that way, you can't go that way. It's very, it's frustrating in the most creepy way, 
is the only way I, I really know how to describe it there. Uh, have you guys had those dreams where you are trying to run, but you can't run or you're, you can't run very fast? Yeah. It's that kind of frustrating of like, I really need to do this, but I can't do this. And I don't like, you know, totally understand why, but I also accept that this just is how it is, but there's nothing I can really do about it. Um, I kind of have dreams too about like, I'll be in like a social situation and then all of a sudden I just can't see. Um, and it kind of feels like that kind of anxiety dream. Yeah, exactly. I, I had those a lot too. And that's exactly yeah. what it reminded me of. And I've, I've never seen a game that really hits that nail, right? Like it just, it really hits that nerve and it's bizarre the way it's built, but it's, it's completely intentional. If you actually go to the, um, the steam store page for it and scroll down to the reviews, the developer himself came in there and said, Hey, I see that you guys are upset about certain aspects of this game, but let me tell you why I made it this way. And, um, I mean, even without that in mind, it's still so immersive and it's, uh, so unique that I find the game itself. Uh, really interesting, and I would definitely want to play through all to all the endings of it. Um, but keeping in mind his review there about you know dealing with OCD, dealing with depression, uh, making the main character asthmatic so he can't get away from that monster as much as you want him to. Uh, I mean, it's it really just builds on layers of fear. There, it's it's pretty interesting. So it's not a survival game, or. It is. Not really, no. Uh, You basically just keep on waking up to different scenarios. And I actually, I haven't even gotten to the end yet. I'm about two, uh, halfway to uh, three quarters of the way through my first playthrough. So I'm not sure how it uh, cultivates to the end there uh, in terms of, because it it seems like you're just constantly in a dream there. That just sounds like my life. Waking (laughs) up every day. (laughs) Waking up to the same nightmare. (laughs) The same nightmare with a slight alteration of how you're being murdered every morning. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love mommyhood. Oh, womp womp. Uh, but yeah, it's it's if you're looking for a unique uh, indie horror experience, I would definitely recommend ch- uh, checking that out. It's not expensive. It's um, I think it's normally fifteen bucks regular price, and it was on sale for five bucks, so I snagged it up. It had been on my wish list for a while there. Um, it's a really short game. Each playthrough is only about two hours, it seems, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, but yeah. there are four different endings. So there's a lot of content you can go through there if you want to go through and play it all again. That sounds awesome. I'm sorry, Sierra. I just posted a picture of you looking cool. Oh, really? <laughs> How cool? <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> Sierra's camera froze in this like cool swagger pose. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't resist. She's just been in, looking oh, yeah, like that, that really for the good. last 10 minutes. <laughs> no. For me, she's just sitting there spinning. Sierra oh, really? is loading. Oh, yep. really? <laughs> Yep. I can't see your glorious blue hair a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, today's topic is remakes, uh, which we will begin our discussion right after the break. The newspaper shout, a new style is born. But it don't know if it's coming up. Joke is on the set. That it's all just a little bit of history. 
And we're back. Uh, so we're talking about remakes this week, and we are going to include uh, foreign adaptations into this as well as chronological remakes. Uh, and we might actually throw in some fantasy discussion here and there if uh, we want to or we have time, that sort of thing. We'll just see how this goes. We're going to keep it a little loose here. So first, let's talk about some of the worst remakes that uh, that we feel have ever been made. Uh, Melissa, I'm going to ask you first, what is your least favorite? I don't know if I'd call it my least favorite because I'm one of those people that like if you I could probably change my list every couple days the more yeah, I think I, about it. I, I'm that way too. I can't yeah, <laughs> I can't pick like a top or bottom, but I came up with three in particular that pop out of my head, and that is Nightmare on Elm Street, Poltergeist, and Conan the Barbarian, hmm. which are all, all right. pretty big disappointments for me, especially Poltergeist, because that's one of my all-time favorite like classic horror films. Right. Um, so, what did you love about the original? What I loved about the original was that it's because of that movie that I forever, whenever I hear ghosts talking or whispering in movies, I just can't. You know, I just that's when I like pick up the pillow and hide. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm fine until they make noise, and I think it's because <laughs> of that movie, because of listening to Carol Ann yell for her mom as she was like swept back and forth through the nether region of the space in their home, and that. That would be traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember that. She was just going, mommy, mommy. Yeah, yeah. She was, it sounded like she was somebody was whipping her back and forth through the air and you couldn't see her, but her voice was kind of coming and going. Um, and, the, and the really creepy whisperings that came through the television all the time. I think that movie got a really great balance of they made you instantly feel very connected to the family and feel like you could be a part of that family. They felt very, you know, average kind of American family kind of struggling to pay their bills and struggling to, you know, keep their marriage happy. And and it was that the family, that happy family fell apart very quickly. Mm-hmm. But the horror in the film itself is very, is very subtle and very subdued. It's just this eerie feeling of, you know, not just something invading your home like a ghost tends to do or a poltergeist tends to do, but something you know, has invaded their home and also taken a, a, an integral part of their family away, taken this little girl out of the home, which was obviously this little girl was kind of like, she was a, a ray of sunshine for this family, you know? She brought like a certain lightness and happiness while they were struggling through all their problems, through marital problems and financial problems. So to have that suddenly like just whipped out, just torn away from them. And yeah, and I wasn't, I mean, I was pretty young when I saw the film, but I could still very clearly remember the torment of those parents and the mother, especially the kind of the hopelessness and helplessness that she felt being able to hear her daughter and know that she was there somewhere in existence, but she couldn't touch her or reach her or do anything. Sounds like stranger things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think, I think stranger things is, you know, I think they might've borrowed a little bit. (laughs) I think they borrowed a little bit from all of our favorite horror films. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, definitely poltergeist. Um, and the, the new one, I, you know, one thing uh, about uh, bad remakes, I think, is that it's hard to remember a lot about them because they, just, yeah. they don't make a mark, right? <laughs> just yeah. kind of like, yeah, somebody remade that one time. So how about this? With, uh, with regards to the remake, when you were about to see it, what were you hoping they would play on from the original that you feel just didn't make the same mark for you in the remake? I was hoping that they would capture that same um, eeriness and uh, unsettled feeling of, of of family being torn apart. Um, it was, I think it, 
Poltergeist was less of a supernatural story and more of a more of a family trauma story. Yeah. I also I just kind of wanted to see I wanted to see something that got into my that got so deep into my heart again like Poltergeist did but it done in a modern way. Yeah. And it just like a lot of remakes I feel like they just they missed the important parts of Poltergeist. They missed the things that made mm-hmm. Poltergeist special and they focused more on the uh, on the ghosty stuff and the special effects and you know it just didn't have the heart. It didn't have the soul that Poltergeist had, and especially when you're talking about a story about a family being torn apart by a supernatural event, you have to have yeah. some heart to it, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you wanted to see ghosty, supernatural, and special effects, you can get that in pretty much any other movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it's easy to do ghost. It's not so easy to put that e emotional connection there with a ghost. Or even, you could even say the same thing about Nightmare on Elm Street, if you want to look at mm-hmm. one of my other choices, right? Yeah. Wait, that one didn't have, that one wasn't so much about it. It was based on a family, but like we didn't feel attached to Nancy's family in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, we didn't care. Um, we didn't even care about her and her boyfriend. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, I think the heart True. in that was really about Freddy Krueger. Like he was, he was a, a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of terror that, um, mm-hmm. That was never represented in that way before. He had this like sense of humor and he kind of saw the torture and and murder of these kids as a joke. And he made it, you know, he joked about it constantly and he laughed at them. He laughed at their terror. It was like a big game for him. And he was attacking them in a way that was very original at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. And inescapable because who can not sleep? Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it was the, the new Nightmare on Elm Street was such a disappointment Largely, too, because they had, um, what is his name? Jackie Earl. Jackie uh, Earl Haley. Yeah. Who's really a, a really cool and interesting person, like, as an actor. And I I thought he would do a great job at this. But, man, I felt like they just, they really dropped the ball on the makeup to begin with and the effects. I, I, I get it. They were trying to make him look more like a genuinely burnt person. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like making his face more genuinely burnt also took away a lot of the um, ability to express himself. You yeah. know what I mean? His face wasn't as you couldn't you couldn't see as much humanity in his face anymore. Which is odd because they seem to try to make him more like a, a burnt human right. rather than a monster. So that it looks like they kind of added they tried to add humanity to him, but they definitely tried to humanize him. Way. But they yeah. took him away. They took it away from him. Yeah, and they and they, they tried to appeal to your, you know, like they tried to make people feel bad for him a lot more. They tried to like appeal to your like, oh, he was bullied and he was misunderstood. And mm-hmm. they really went that route with him. And then on the same token, they didn't give him any of the humor that the original Freddy Krueger had. So he lost a lot of the charm in the character to begin with, you know. Right. Wasn't that one of the uh, Michael Bay remakes? Because I know he's been on a uh, horror remake spree. I feel like that was one of them. Was it? I think so. He produced, uh, Michael Bay produced the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Amityville Horror hmm. and all these other things. So that's... Which surprisingly, those two, I think, were not nearly as terrible. So yeah. considering they're from Michael Bay. Yeah, Conan the Barbarian was a pretty big disappointment for me, too. That's just I don't one think of I the... ever watched that. You never watched the original or the remake? Neither. When did it yeah. get remade? Was that recent? Yeah, I want to say like maybe two years ago. Oh, I don't remember that at all. You don't? No. That was it was actually Jason Momoa from Game of Thrones. Okay. Oh. And played Conan. Huh, 2011. So it was more than two years ago. That's my. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I'm terrible with time frames. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, Jason Momoa and Ron Perlman was in it too. Ooh. It's one of, yeah, one of those things where like you have kind of cool people to work with. Like, why didn't that work? Yeah, what went wrong? Always was, a bummer. He, he, Conan came across as just this very like douchey, muscly, grunting sort of, you know, and mm-hmm. the original Conan was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he, he wasn't like super intelligent and well spoken. But- <laughs> But, you know, I think when you take something that's got that kind of, like, kitsch to it, like the original Conan the Barbarian, which um, was, let me see, 1982. So, you know, it's it's very 80s. Um, but when you take something like that, <laughs> James Earl Jones was in the original, too, which I forgot. Um, and you take something like that, and it's kind of kitschy and silly like that, and you update it, and you, you don't have any of that kitschy silliness. It just comes across as cheesy and... Mm-hmm. Not, not well yeah. acted. It doesn't yeah. work, you know. It's. I think that's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to maintain like that silly kitschiness in something when you when you remake it without coming across just silly and cheesy. Very true. So, Sierra, yeah. I know that you have some beef with Tim Burton. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was starting to think about what are my least favorite <laughs> remakes, and they were all just like. Oh, I remember when Tim Burton did this. I trusted him so much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, when it comes to remakes, I feel like that guy, oh, that guy, he's so, he used to be so good. He used to, he, he did so many good original stories. See, that's the thing is when, you know, back when we were kids, like he did yeah. such incredible stuff. It's like, like Ed we, Wood, Edward Scissorhands. We did trust he, him. Yeah. <laughs> we all trusted him. And I invested so much time and energy into a pre, into like, being a fangirl of Tim Burton, and then in the last probably and then you know, he met Johnny years, Depp. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, their their Sweeney Todd remake is okay. Um, the you know new Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is like, why would you even remake the original? That's like a lot of the reasons that I kind of try to or you know want to avoid remakes is like, why did you even need to mess with the original? Because it was already. Yeah. I don't know what you're going to try to add to it. Um, which. To be fair, I think that when people are complaining about it, it's, you know, nobody's forcing you to watch it. You still have your original Ghostbuster Bros. Um, (laughs) Nobody's taking it away from you. Um, But, yeah, and once I think Tim Burton kind of got this, uh, everybody knew him as the guy that, you know, has black crooked spirals and those weird trees and pins, you know, black and white stripes, and that's Tim Burton. Then it would just like, okay, let's take a movie and throw that at it, and then it's something new, and it's it's not something new. It's not adding anything or it's not um, really reimagining it in a way that I really need to have happen. Um, And he's just happened again and again, like the Dark Shadows movie, remaking the old TV show. Like, I think if you're trying to um, remake something for a new generation, then that could be a good reason to want to remake something. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, like what Melissa said, you know, bad remix there's nothing really memorable about it and nobody's really talking about those movies anymore we all just kind of forgot about it it's or we want like, to forget or we want yeah. to forget it's not like i don't think there are very many people who like their favorite movie is dark shadows or <laughs> <laughs> right or their favorite movie is his planet of the apes like i don't know that was just i, I couldn't get i couldn't get past that i just need to, need to <laughs> rant about it <laughs> ryan has been working on an article that um, mm-hmm. unfortunately due to technical difficulties uh i wasn't able to share with you guys before he did this but one of the things that he talks about in there that i never really thought much about was people who feel like remakes 
like what's the point of doing a remake, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And an argument that he makes, which I think is really legitimate, is that everything is taken or derivative of something else to begin with. Everything mm-hmm. everything is essentially a remaking of a story that's been told before, is something that they saw before. It's um, all just the hero's journey over and over again. Yeah, right, the right. The same archetypes, so, the same kind of characters popping up in different kind of scenarios or well so you could make the argument that you know i mean there's lots of different ways to remake something Mm -hmm. but which which i don't want to tell you guys the whole thing but he lists out some really like specific different kinds of remakes and there's various types there you know it's it's interesting to think of it that way like i don't know if it's arguing that something shouldn't be remade just because it was good the first time around that would be like saying well you know, I mean, so many things wouldn't have ever been created if somebody didn't take something that was already good and manipulate it and twist it and make something fresh out of it, right? It's the whole basis of hit record. Yeah. yeah. Well, and part of the, uh, <laughs> a little piece of this article that I want to share with you guys, because I think it would mm-hmm. help us to examine some of these movies moving forward, is <laughs> a section he has that's called How to Tell if a Remake Will Be a Turd. <laughs> <laughs> It's very eloquent. The first one is adherence to the original. And he says that this is basically saying like what they did with Psycho, which is another one of the worst remakes ever. Um, When you try to do a shot for shot remake, you literally just use the same dialogue. What is the point? Then it's what is the (laughs) The point? Same scenes. Right. What are you doing? Right. Unless it's, it's that one penguin shot for shot remake of the thing in Claymation, <laughs> then I'm super okay with that. That might be like my favorite remake ever. Or that Aesop Rock remake of The yes. Shining with the puppets. <laughs> then you're adding another layer of artistic. <laughs> so as long as you put Claymation or animation into it, then it's clear, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. So the point of that is that the less a remake adheres to the original film, the better it tends to be. You kind of see that. Which is an interesting point because I think a lot of people think, oh, well, it's not, you hear a lot of people argue, well, it wasn't enough like the original or it didn't, you know, they changed too many things from the original. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they weren't loyal enough, you know. It's, right. But if it were exactly like the original, why would you even go see it? Well, and and the point being that usually the ones that are exactly like the original are the ones that are turds. Are, are remarkable, yeah. <laughs> I think um, a related idea to that, which came up, it comes up a lot, I think, in, in remakes or reimaginings or sequels or anything like that. Um, come up, It came up a lot in Ghostbusters for me, even though I love I love the new Ghostbusters so much. Um, and I think we all kind of agree, but the, the problem of having so many kind of nods to the original and throwbacks and cameos to the point where it derails the story and the momentum of it. Right. Um, then I think you need to, you know, kind of step back and see if it's really adding anything to the new version or if it's just there as novelty. Taking away from the story that's happening. Yeah. Right, right. So the there's, there's only three of these, but I want to share them with you. The second one is how well the original holds up. And his point is that movies that don't hold up well today are ripe for remakes. That makes me think of a lot of movies. There's a lot of movies. Um, Big time. Yep. Like Clash of the Titans is what I was mentioning. Hello, 1980s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that don't hold up so well that, you know, could you could have a really great remake of them because they're just so dated that they don't feel right anymore. Um, and then the third one is how competent the filmmakers are, which, you know, obviously we've seen that over and over again. But he says both good and bad surprises happen all the time from people we expect good or bad things from, which we just talked about Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. 
and a couple of his remakes that usually you'd say Michael Bay and I'd be like, oh, hell no. Right. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that man. I'll pass. <laughs> yeah, I've seen enough helicopters this week. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But personally, like take Amityville Horror is an excellent point of several of these points, actually, right? If you guys have rewatched the original Amityville Horror, it does not hold up. It's silly. Right? It is. There's a scene with, I swear, is literally a chunk of cardboard with two holes in it bopping up and down outside the window <laughs> and they're just like two little eyes going like this <laughs> so the new amityville horror's got a lot of flaws but it definitely was scarier and more impressive than <laughs> the first one <laughs> right you know just three things to think about as we kind of pick apart these these remakes that there there is actually a pattern here of things mm-hmm. that work and things that don't work Right. And on that note, one thing, it's actually a fantasy movie, but one thing that I kept coming back to in our discussion for this was Clash of the Titans. Mm -hmm. That was one of my favorite movies growing up. I absolutely loved it. And then like in the 90s and early 2000s, like it'd be so cool for them to remake that with modern technology because the monsters in it are so shit. Like they look so terrible. (laughs) Like Medusa, like they did the best they could with Medusa in that original movie, but she still just looked like a lady with a mop on her head. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was pretty rough. So but then the uh the remake actually did come out and I was really excited for it. And it was like, you know, the expression Hollywood magic, like this was all Hollywood and no magic to me. Mm-hmm. Like they they had all the big money effects and they they had all the resources to really make it great, but there was no heart in it. Like it didn't it didn't carry that same, yeah, I'm gonna love this forever vibe to me that the original did. And honestly, like thinking back on it, I was even considering rewatching it for this, but I couldn't even remember any specific <laughs> scenes that I can point to. I'm like, it just sucked. Like I just I can't. <laughs> I, I read a lot of lists of worst remakes to prepare for this, and that was on pretty much all of them. Yeah. I, know, I know I saw it, but I couldn't remember anything about it. Yeah, exactly. In fact, going back and saying, I was like, oh, he was in that movie? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Just completely and washed away. One thing that I actually, um, I don't know if Ryan has posted that article yet or not, but this might be helpful to him as a point. Uh, one thing that really gets me is... Um, foreign adaptations um like sometimes they're great sometimes like you can adapt a movie for another audience and it works well sometimes it's like can you not fucking read subtitles enough to get through this like seriously (laughs) it's not it's not that hard to read a few subtitles to get through this incredible movie um but one and i i've talked about this before on the podcast probably a couple times by now because it pisses me off to no end uh but let me in and let the right one in really drive me crazy uh let the right one in it's it's an incredible movie it is uh i i think it was finnish and it's about a, a little vampire girl who is uh befriending a young isolated boy who has no friends and is constantly bullied and it's it's an adorable story of friendship and it's i mean they're vampires of course um but you honestly wouldn't even really know it was a vampire movie by uh just taking out the vampire parts and putting the rest of it together it would just look like a movie of friendship between a lonely boy and a lonely girl who don't have anybody else um and then you throw in the uh let me in remake which was uh in 2010, and it uh, starred Chloe Moretz, who I am just realizing today I don't like as an actress. That's going to be an unpopular opinion. But um, 
it stars Chloe Moretz, and she doesn't nail the role. I'll I'll mention that much. Uh, she I don't think she's good in it at all. Like when she uh, convulses trying to come into the apartment, it just looks fake and cheesy and stupid. And the way uh, the main character, his name is Owen in this one, the way he was written, it makes him look like a pervert, like a perverted, annoying little child instead of an actually lonely little boy who needs a little help. And I just, like, I, I actually may have been better if they did a shot for shot remake of this for Amer- American audiences versus trying to do their own thing on this and it completely flopping because the original was really great and I can kind of understand them making it for American audiences to be a little more accessible, but this just sucked. Well, it's another thing of them completely missing the charm of the original. Yeah. And yeah. the heart of it. That one didn't bother me as much, but I do I do like Chloe Moretz quite a bit. Um, but I don't know. I don't like... I. This, so this, this was going to be my next question, right? So how much do you think you are influenced by how you feel about a remake? Like, how, how much does um, nostalgia or personal attachment affect how you feel about a remake? I think it definitely has a, a huge uh, impact on me personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I if I really love the original, then I'm going to set a pretty high standard for the mm-hmm. remake. And, uh, of course, sometimes that could be unrealistic and... Personally, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing, so I can go in and be like, no, let's just separate this, and I'm going to squeeze on in here, and it'll be fine. It's it's fine. But it's there's always going to be that, you know, that overlaying sense of, well, it wasn't as good as the original. Like, it's hard to separate that and just look at it as a movie. I mean, I felt like, just take Dark Shadows, for example, because Sierra brought this one up, right? I never watched the TV show. I had no attachment to it. And I went into that movie and I enjoyed it just for what it is. I thought it it was, I actually kind of found it fun to see like a little bit of humor back into a Tim Burton movie again. It felt silly and humorous, humorous and loose and not trying so hard to be gothic and, and heavy. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. But I also don't give a shit about Dark Shadows because yeah. I <laughs> never saw it to begin with. So I just kind of took it as a new Tim Burton thing like oh this is a cool new movie you know yeah um where there's so many especially I think when you remake 80s films in particular I know Sierra is a little bit of a younger generation maybe than yeah. Jackie and I but I Jack I think my generation Jackie's generation anybody from like 30 and up right now have this we're having this really strong moment of nostalgia with the 80s and the early 90s and wanting to yeah. re- relive that and so, I'm just waiting for them to remake Space Jam, honestly. <laughs> Space Jam. They, they were saying they were going to make Space Jam too. I don't know if that's for sure, but it was going around. I would see that in the <laughs> theaters. Yeah. I, would, oh, yeah. I would for real. Oh, everybody oh would. That movie now, would make so much money. Jackie, one of your other uh, worst movies that is also Chloe Moretz is Carrie. Yeah. And yeah. I will completely agree with you on that. We actually had a conversation about yeah. this a few days ago, and I felt like that was a complete failure. Yeah. That, and see, that one I actually, I mean, I'd seen the original, obviously, but I saw it when I was really young, and I hadn't watched it again until after I saw the remake. So I feel like that wasn't really all that uh, influenced by my feelings on the original. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, it really just kind of fell flat. Yeah, that movie was underwhelming to me. Chloe Moretz was one of the problems with that movie, and I hate to say that because I do like her, but they just they they couldn't 
they couldn't make it believable at all that she was unpopular or bullied or shy. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, she just looked, they couldn't ugly her up enough in personality or, or physically right. to make her yeah. believable in that role. But I will say Julianne Moore was pretty great in it. Yeah. I would actually like to see her in more villainous kind of roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was great. I Although they, they completely switched around like the role of the mom and the, they, they really manipulated mm-hmm. like who the mom was in the remake too yeah it's the actual character was uh it was interesting but i think it kind of worked in the context to an extent but i think uh julianne moore did it did as good as she could have with it she did as well as she could have with it what were you gonna say sarah i'm definitely feeling this kind of anxiety around you know something that i really love being remade we were i think when we were first floating the idea for this episode, we contextualized it around the fact that they're remaking a lot of new things uh, in the next year or so. They're remaking It. They're remaking The Exorcist. Um, They are remaking Rocky Horror Picture Show. There's like a bunch that are coming up that I feel very strongly about. And especially I think with Carrie and with It, I think that it's also uh, fighting against how I feel about the book and the nostalgia for the book too. So that's just another layer on top of it of feeling... I don't know, they're gonna mess it up. They're not gonna do yeah. it right. They're gonna miss miss the mark and they're gonna leave out the you know, all of my favorite parts. But it's not like they're making a, a movie for me. They're making a movie for the masses. But I don't know. That's just a whole nother aspect to it. Well, that actually, you know, I think about it almost like if you so let's take the two examples. You just said it and you said uh what was the other one? Carrie, right? Yeah, both it and st- Carrie. Both- both yeah. Stephen King stories, right? And we could do a whole episode on movie adaptions of Stephen King. Right. And how right. they have failed or, or triumphed. Yeah. Right. He's had an equal amount of both. So it, I think, very securely falls into that category of it does not it does not carry over well into modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, if you rewatch that film, anything other than Tim Curry yeah. is completely silly and ridiculous. And that's how I felt when I watched that. Well, I guess it's a, a miniseries, not technically technically a movie but uh but the book was the first Stephen King book that I read and so it's very like has a a a large space in my heart for it right but don't you can you look at this like oh well this is a second chance for somebody to do it better yeah I mean you're not going to get better than Tim Curry let me just say that right nobody's going to get better (laughs) than Tim Curry as Pennywise but you could make a better movie essentially than Mm -hmm. what was originally made yeah I keep flip-flopping back and forth um especially based on the kind of few articles here and there of pictures from the sets that they're building and things like that and uh there's some articles going around of like oh, they built this house. That means that this, this, and this is probably going to be in the movie. And so that's getting me really excited. And it makes me, it definitely makes me want to reread the book before the film comes out, which is, I feel like that's a victory in and of itself to like want to go and revisit something that I love. So mm-hmm. so it's stimulating something in you that makes you want to revisit that story, which is a positive. Definitely, yeah. To start yeah, with, yeah. right? I've seen the actor who's playing Pennywise mm-hmm. now, and I don't know much about him, but he definitely is not, you know, he's not Tim Curry's Pennywise, but to me, he looks pretty terrifying already. And I'm mm-hmm. interested to see what comes out of his mouth when he when he's actually... Yeah. Who is he? It's Bill Skarsgård. Uh, so yeah, he's Swedish. He was in, let's see, he was in Hemlock Grove, um, Simon and the Oaks. I'm not familiar with any of these things. I watched some of Hemlock Grove and that was Did a fun... You? I think it was maybe just the Netflix original. It was definitely yeah. on Netflix. Um, yeah, it's Netflix. Yeah, and it was just... It was a fun, dark kind of story. Uh, One thing that you have on the list here of horror remakes that are coming up that I am anxious about is Suspiria. Mm -hmm. That's like the most artistic horror movie 
I've ever seen. Do you think that one is is uh, carries over well now, though? If you if you watched it, like, does it hold up well? Not the story, no. But <laughs> the visual effects. I mean, that's what Dario Argento is all about: is visual effects. Like he's yeah, really that was the with, point of it. Yeah. Uh, so that that is what I would be anxious about is how those visual effects are going to translate to a modern remake. Right. I think for that specific one, it runs the risk of them focusing too much on, uh, you know, making it super spooky like the Poltergeist remake was and focusing too much on that and missing the point of it's also this kind of artistic endeavor. Yeah. We just went to the movies on Friday to see Star Trek Beyond mm-hmm. and um. At the beginning of that, we saw a trailer for the Magnificent Seven remake, um, which I never saw the original Magnificent Seven. I don't know much about it, but when the trailer was over, I looked at Ryan and said, that looks really fun. Like, it looks it looks really fun and cool. And I don't know about you guys, but part of my, like, part of my movie nostalgia in the early 90s was the cool old westerns, like Tombstone and Young Guns. And um, I haven't seen, like, a good fun western in a long time. So maybe maybe Penny Dreadful <laughs> did that for me, <laughs> rekindled that need for that. But the Magnificent Seven looks really fun. It's got um, Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt and Vincent D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio. <laughs> yeah. Peter Skarsgård. It's got a lot of good people in it. Ethan Hawke. There's just like, and it just looked really like a really fun kind of quirky classic Western. I'm judging that purely based on one trailer, so maybe it will be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so what about our uh, our favorites here? Sierra, what are uh, some of your favorite remakes that have happened? Um, when I was thinking of favorites, one that definitely came up was Evil Dead 2 as a remake of Evil Dead. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's that on my list too. Another, another cause for remaking something is, you know, maybe the the people involved wanted a second chance at it. I think that's totally fair. Um, and I think that is definitely one where this, the remake is so much better. It's, right. It, it catches more of the slapstick kind of horror that Sam Raimi's super good at and he's all about. And um, I think it it's definitely more of the story that they set out to tell the first time and just had problems with. Um, and then going off of that, the uh, recent Evil Dead in 2013, I thought was a good movie if you can remove it from the Evil Dead kind of franchise and um, look at it as a, as a thing of its own. Um, the reason why I love Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, is that it is so weird and bizarre and slapsticky and it's not afraid to have like, um, you know, throw as much blood at Bruce Campbell's face and uh, have kind of claymation demons falling apart and... Um, <laughs> And they, they will, you know, if they, they'll kind of go about uh, re- do, getting a shot any way that they can, maybe not doing it the right way, but doing it their way. Um, tw- I think it was 2013 remake. The, it's, it's an interesting movie and it definitely uh, was fun to watch, but it, it didn't capture that same kind of lighthearted, fun playfulness that the old ones have. So I think it's hilarious uh, that they made The Evil Dead, decided it wasn't quite good enough, which apparently they actually made a really, really, really super low budget version of it before mm-hmm. that wide release original <laughs> Evil Dead. And then they decided, now we can do better. So then they mm-hmm. released a whole other Evil Dead and then Evil called Dead it 2. Evil Dead 2, but it was which literally the sense. same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's um, the exact same movie. <laughs> I, if you like The Evil Dead, I definitely definitely recommend uh reading bruce campbell's uh biography of chins could kill um because he really dives into the nerdiness of like this is how we got that angle and we had these people like under the floorboards like 
you know, all uh, contorted to try to get that shot. Or this is like how we rigged up the car and and me on it and to get that shot and um, all of their effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just all of you know their flavor of special effects. Yeah, I saw the remake, but I don't remember. Did they do the atta- the hand attacking thing? I don't think so. I need to rewatch the remake to be honest, because I remember liking it, but also being kind of sour about it. Um, because you know, I'm I'm cool and I really like the original. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that book title a bunch of times, but it still cracks me up. If Chins could kill, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> every time. Bruce Campbell Bruce has Campbell. such a good sense of humor about himself. He really does. And his, uh, did you ever see his X Files episode? Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> It's honestly one of my favorite X-Files episodes ever. Mm-hmm. And then also while we're on the topic of Evil Dead, uh, Evil Dead the Musical is a really interesting remake and an interesting thing to bring up as far as why you would remake something and what you can add to it or reimagine it as. And I think that that is absolutely a story that works as a musical and a stage production. It I is can't so imagine who watched, watched the it. Evil Dead and said, this movie is lacking songs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say I ever thought that while I was watching <laughs> How about you, Melissa? What do you, uh, what's in your best category? I came up with, I was trying to come up with five of each, and for some reason I can only come up with five of my worst because I just block out the rest of them. <laughs> but my favorites were pretty easy. Uh, the Crazies is a huge favorite of mine, and I tried to force you guys to watch it, so I'm interested if you watched it or not. Dawn of the Dead is also one of my favorite remakes, which I thought was really great. Um, the Thing is, I oh. know. Oh, The Thing is so good. And I think that's a good example of the the thing that it's based on is not, you know, doesn't have the and best And I want to specify, yeah. I'm referring to the 1982 The Thing, not the 2011 yeah. The Thing. Um, that That's not on my best list. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Ring, I thought was a great, speaking of foreign remakes, I thought The Ring was a great uh, remake from the original. And Cape Fear was also one of my favorites. Um, I think the Cape Fear was 1980-something. No, actually 1990-something. I think I'm dating it for lo- older than it is. 1991, it was Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. So I, I remember that one kind of giving me the original, like, home invasion fear, you know? Before home invasion movies were a big thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before um, we got bombarded with all of them. Yeah, yeah. And just uh, Robert De Niro was so creepy in that movie. Oh, God, he was such a creepy weirdo. And just, you know, just gave you that, like, stranger danger <laughs> feeling. <laughs> um, and also that, you know, I was pretty young when I saw it, and he kind of preys on their teenage daughter. And you just get that, like, icky, icky, like, rapey stranger feeling, like, oh. No, he's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Crazies is one of my all-time favorites. Oh my god, I love that movie. I'm interested to hear if you guys liked it or not. Yeah, I had technical difficulties, so I'll probably end up watching it after. Oh we no! Here. Yeah, sorry. I'll try to get to it before we recorded it. It didn't work out. I super wanted to rewatch it. I watched it, I think, in in middle school with my friend Kiana, um, and I haven't watched it since, and I really wanted to watch it before we recorded this, but then family stuff and traveling and all of that. Um, yeah. But, oh, that's a good movie. <laughs> but yes. I know nothing about it, so let's hear it. What's it about? What's going on? I think I actually referred to this maybe in our last episode. I can't remember where I we talked about like some of the most intense moments, and I told you this was one of my favorite intense moments in movies. Was um, So it's, it's about a um, some kind of uh, virus that breaks out in this small rural town and people start acting really strange and it's not 
I it's, it's it's almost tempting to call them zombies, but they're not zombies because they're still thinking and they're still able to like use machinery and tools. But they just they very much get like if there's ever been a good example of dead eyes, it's these people. They just like they're checked out like there's nothing there. And but at the same time, they're completely focused on killing. Um, and yeah, I think I explained this. This movie opens. This, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's the opening scene. So I'm just going to put it out there. Um, this movie opens with a man um, deciding to burn his family to death. And oh, dang. When they find him, when the, when the police and the neighbors arrive, they find him just sitting calmly in front of his house, just staring off into the distance. And he doesn't appear to be at all um, affected by what he's done. And, you know, they're just like, this is just like your average kind of farmer, nice guy. The neighbors know him, you know, his family, they, his, they've seen his family around the grocery store. Like there's nothing strange about them. And very quickly, they start to realize, I think uh, Timothy Oliphant is the uh, the star here, who's also not bad to look at, but um, he's the sheriff and his wife is a doctor in the town. And they very quickly start to realize that people all over the town are falling prey to this uh, virus. And one of the one of the best scenes, one of my favorite scenes in this is a, a clip where the they start to create a... Um, they start to quarantine people inside these like plastic tents. You know, the government shows up, the military, and they're like, oh, I'm going to quarantine all the bad people inside this tent. And what they're doing is they're actually like, they're taking temperatures, you know, and anybody who's got like a slight fever is like, oh, you you go in the quarantine tent. You might be sick. Oh, no. So, yeah. So you've got all these like, and then and then the uh, the quarantine area, you know, like all zombie flu outbreak movies ends up going, becoming attacked or becoming not safe. You have these women who are inside this quarantine tent and they're strapped down to gurneys, to stretchers inside the tent. And they're waiting for the doctors to come around and, and investigate and to test them. And they can't move. And the one of the one of the crazies gets into the tent and he's walking down the hall, dragging a pitchfork next to him. Um, and he decides to walk around the room and slowly um, exterminate anybody in the room who is moving and so you have these two women who are obviously not infected they they're just scared shitless and they're tied to these gurneys right next to each other and they're trying to stay as still and quiet as possible but the panic is just like rising and rising the closer he gets and the whole time he's he's scraping this pitchfork along the along the floor next to him oh good god yeah it's just like one of the most it just gives me shivers thinking about it. it's one of the most tense moments i've ever seen in a film and it's just really incredible and it you know it's just it's a great movie and it's got this great balance i think of like really quiet intense moments like that that make you want to pee your pants and also <laughs> like action you know those those moments that you need in films like this where people are running just running as fast as they can and just trying to hide or trying to find somewhere you know you want to get a car you want to get the hell out of that town as fast as you can and it's just a really cool really intense movie that's awesome i love movies that really do intensity very well yeah this one does really well awesome so i I don't know did i give you the rest of my favorites i think i did and i got distracted by talking about the crazies well let's talk about (laughs) dawn of the dead because that's i feel like that's one that we'll all have something to say about how do you feel about the dawn of the dead remake jackie well, I actually really like the Donna the remake. It's um I, I feel like that's one of the situations where they just kind of brought that into a more modern audience in a more modern setting. Like it it had its own 
sense of urgency and it had its own little flavor there uh, versus the original. Uh, but it didn't it didn't diminish the original. It didn't do a shot for shot remake. It, it like it's it was just a good remake overall, I feel. And another example of a surprising success from a director who you might not think would do something like this well. Was that a Michael Bay one? It was Zack Snyder actually. Oh. Oh, who's had I did some? Not who's had that. some pretty big flops recently? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like for the last five years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he did this one really well. There's yeah. that that you know that uh that really well known moment that they showed in a lot of trailers with the young girl coming into the house in her nightgown. Right. Right. And they uh the people and- are just sleeping peacefully, like oh hi neighbor, mm-hmm. <laughs> little girl. <laughs> like she is not a little girl. <laughs> Which reminds me a bit, too, of the whole, they. I guess doing child zombies is pretty powerful because they did something similar in The Walking Dead. Do you remember in the first season with the little girl in the, and I think she was wearing a nightgown, too, that uh, Rick Grimes comes across her very early on. I'm sorry, that was years ago. I have no idea. Don't remember. <laughs> no, no, not even a little. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Dawn of the Dead, I actually, I really appreciated. Was there anything from the original that they brought into the sequel that you feel, feel they did right, specifically? Like the way the zombies move or anything? I, You know what? Actually, there's something that I like better about this one. People are going to hate me for saying this. I'm probably going to get like Twitter, Twitter banished for this, but um, I'm not crazy about the political habits of George Romero. Um, so sometimes his the original George Romero films are, you know, f- for me, like, I just want him to just, like, lighten up and just be a zombie horror movie. Yeah. So I like that Dawn of the Dead felt more like that. It felt more like a straightforward... There was a little bit of a social commentary going on inside the mall between the different groups, you know, and obviously, like, a power play happening there. But I think that's going to happen in any kind of any kind of like apocalyptic type film. Right? Yeah, any kind of survivalist uh, situation where there's a group of people that's going to happen. Right. People are going to separate and like try to take power for one reason or another. Um, I thought the whole baby zombie thing was kind of silly, but... Yeah. Zombie baby was... was- Creepy. They took me out of it. I think it was really good right up until the moment that the baby was there. Yeah. I thought I thought the idea of the woman being pregnant mm-hmm. and being affected was really cool. And the idea of her husband kind of protecting her and hiding her away was really cool. Mm-hmm. And it created a it created an extra element of tension to the story, but right up until the baby arrived. <laughs> yeah, it's like that terror that hides in the shadows that it like not knowing, not actually seeing it and not actually knowing it face to face makes it a lot scarier. Mm-hmm. Because what you imagine is going to be so much more real to you. George Romero is another one of those where, like, similar to Tim Burton, I feel like I love so much of his early stuff. But then as he keeps kind of harping on the same subjects and keeps trying to redo it and just milk it for all it's worth, it gets worse and worse. Like, um, Survival of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, even, like, Land of the Dead. (laughs) Which one had (laughs) the uh, horse on the island? That was Diary of the Dead, I think. Diary of the Dead. That was terrible. The island... The island that's off the shore of Connecticut, yet they all have Irish accents. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they did, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> they did. And they specified in the beginning that it's like off off the shore of, of Connecticut. <laughs> like, why would you put that detail in? <laughs> yeah. The zombie that continues to ride her horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you, you climbed so high and then fell so far. <laughs> George Romero. Tim and it's Burton. tough to it is tough to <laughs> criticize George Romero though, because I feel like like he He's the king of the zombies. He created the genre, you know, so like if he wants to have fun and be screwy with it, can we really tell him no? You know, um, his films are going to 
you know, it doesn't mean you have to like them, but yeah. he, he's kind of earned the right to do what he wants to do, right? And mess around right. with it. On the subject of uh, of zombie-related things, um, one that's on my list is Quarantine, which is the American mm-hmm. remake of Record, which if I recall Rec. is... Uh, Rec. Rec, yeah. Which I recall is uh, Spanish, Spanish, maybe? Yeah. Yep. yeah. It is. Uh, in uh, Record, I... Th- when I first saw that, I was, like, blown away by how great it was. Usually I don't like those movies that are kind of uh, a little bit found footage style. Like, it mm-hmm. takes a lot for me to really like them. Um, but that one, like, it felt like it had the right amount of tension building up and the the right amount of action going on. And the uh, actors in it were fantastic, especially the lead actress there. Uh, so that is, like, kind of high on my list of uh, horror movies in general. Uh, so that one, like, holds a little special place in my horror heart. Uh, and Quarantine, I actually watched it earlier today because I'd never seen it. Um, and I really wanted to be able to know more about it and mention it in here because of how I feel about record. But Quarantine, I have such mixed feelings about. Like, the first half of it was boring as hell. It was so slow. And uh, Jennifer Carpenter, who a lot of people are going to know from Dexter and... Um, what is that? Uh, the Exorcism of Emily Rose. I feel like the whole time I was watching uh, Dexter, like my feelings on her as an actress would go back and forth. And then I saw The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And that's not really highly regarded anyway, but God, I thought it was terrible. Uh, especially uh, Jennifer Carpenter's performance in that. But here in Quarantine, I was really annoyed by how terrible she is as a relatable human in the uh, beginning of the movie. Like, she plays a freak-out scene, like an emotional freak-out and breakdown scene fantastically. Like, she can scream and flail with the best of them. But when it comes to being somebody that you, in a story, in the context of a story, you need to relate to at least a little bit in order to have any kind of emotional connection with the story, she really drops the ball there. I love Rex so much. Yeah. It's definitely one of my, like, probably top six favorite zombie films. I think I liked Quarantine, but honestly, I don't really remember it that well. Yeah. Maybe not a good sign. (laughs) I don't remember hating it, but I just don't, it doesn't, it didn't stick with me the way that Wreck did, so. A lot of it was very similar to the original, and that's probably why they will blend together for you. Uh, like when they come into the scene of uh, the lobby and all the tenants in the uh, apartment building coming down and like, what's going on? Why are all these policemen here? Uh, I swear to God, they must use the same damn set because it looked exactly, exactly the same. And I mean, they're American actors in uh, this version, obviously, but they it, they're casted so much to look like the actors from the original movie. Like, I, I feel like they were trying really hard to stick to the original movie, so much so that they didn't quite think about what movie they were really producing, like, what their version was coming out to be. They were just trying to be this other movie. Um, that said, though, they took a different uh, approach with the zombie outbreak, if we are calling them zombies, a kind of zombies. I would definitely call these ones zombies. Yeah. Uh, they took a different uh, approach with that in terms of how they were created. And um, I don't want to give anything away there, so I'm not going to mention the details of that. But uh, from what I have read, I have not seen the sequel of this yet, but from what I've read, that makes the sequel very different. And the, the American sequel actually has a phenomenal rating on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb. So I'm very curious about that. Have either of you seen the Quarantine 2, the sequel there? Uh-uh. I don't remember. But now I'm going to look it up and see. 
Yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet, but that's um, it's definitely on my list now. And while you're looking that up, um, I want to make mention of Joey King again. She was the little girl uh, that kind of started the outbreak in the building, sort of. The little girl that had a fever. She was the Patient main... Zero. Yeah, kind of, sort of. It like turns out it started with somebody else, but I mean, we'll, we'll not get into those spoilers, but she was the little girl here in quarantine. <laughs> But I've mentioned her in the past. She has um, quite a career coming in the horror genre. She was, um, she's in Fargo right now. She was in The Conjuring. She was in Jericho. Um, I kind of feel like she uh, she could be a very big thing in horror. And I this was actually one of her first roles. This was before all of that happened. Um, but she she's an incredible actress. I kind of feel like she's what Chloe Moretz should be as an actress. Yeah, I don't recall that. I'm just looking up the second rec two. I don't record. I don't record. I don't recall seeing it. But I see that the girl the, who stars in it is also um, one of the main characters from Fear the Walking Dead. Mercedes Mercedes Mason, I think, is her name. She plays the uh, the Spanish daughter, the the daughter and the father who are on the boat together. I haven't seen Fear the Walking Dead yet, but I've heard it's fantastic. It's pretty good. It's got ups and downs. But it's it's overall pretty good, yeah. Gets better as it goes. I really want to see what you guys, if you came up with any fantasy remakes. Mine was uh, Clash of the Titans was my big one there. Mm-hmm. I would uh, love to see a remake of Hellraiser, I think. <laughs> I think that that was one that um, I rewatched the first one pretty recently. And it was one of those that's just like, I don't believe these characters it feels like a soap opera. Their hair and their clothes are too silly for me to even get into this at all. It definitely, that's an example of one that doesn't hold up well, mm-hmm. except for the Cenobites. The Cenobites, oh, yeah. I think, are pretty timeless. There's a every, lot there. I feel yeah. like I may have heard that they were remaking uh, Hellraiser. Here's here's the thing. Don't, here's don't the quote thing. me on that about hearing yeah. things. <laughs> They've tried to continue Hellraiser many times and have failed um i think pinhead is really hard to do with anybody else mm-hmm. yeah i don't i mean that pinhead is the is just so iconic and yeah it's kind of, kind of like trying to redo freddy krueger with somebody new you know i don't know if another actor would be able to recapture the charm of pinhead um <laughs> now hellraiser is one of my all-time favorite horror movies ever 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 although i think Hellraiser's- it would be interesting to see yeah Hellraiser 2 is pretty good, too. One of the later Hellraisers that they did that had a different actor, and it was just horrible. Mm. It looked like it looked like Pinhead had sat around and, like, eaten a lot of cheeseburgers oh, and become no. kind of bloated <laughs> and lazy and slow. It seemed like they kind of got progressively worse. It's like that worse. one season of Battlestar. Right. <laughs> one movie that is on my... Uh, on my better than the original list that I think Melissa, I think you put it on just good or maybe so-so was Fright Night. Mm. Oh, I liked Fright Night. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought the uh, the remake was a lot of fun. Like it had a, a good um, a good sense of humor to it that I don't think was as well uh, related in the original. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's a very underrated remake. Yeah, I was in it for David Tennant, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I it was went. Also, it was also a good movie, so I yeah, you stick around for the the rest of it. Yeah, I yeah, I, that one definitely for me that one doesn't uh, hold up very well. And there were a couple actors in the first one that I really got that really bothered me and got yeah. under my skin. So I didn't I didn't mind it being remade at all. And 
what is it? <laughs> I know if I say this, like people are going to hate me because one of the main characters in that original, I just could not stand him. And he's one of people's favorite characters. <laughs> I was like, Evil Ed, oh. the character of Evil Ed really like bothers me in the original film and I just don't want to... I'm just like, get off. I don't want to see him at all. <laughs> so <laughs> I was really happy with the uh, the remake that that character was kind of taken down a notch and was a little less strange. And Yeah, he had a... Uh, he was still a little annoying, but he was... Um... He was annoying in a good way, I, f- I feel. And that, that's a weird sentence to say. But mm-hmm. yeah. My husband he, like... agrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> he comes in at like just the right points to be like... I don't know, just to take away from the the tension of being chased by the main vampire and add a little sidekick humor going on there, that kind of thing. And the remake also had Anton Yelchin yeah. and Colin Farrell. Yeah, I think Colin Farrell is often underrated in general. He's mm-hmm. a fantastic comedic actor. Like, I yeah. feel like he's not praised enough for that. Like, have you guys seen In Bruges? Yes. It's one of yeah. my favorite movies, all because of him. That's the movie that if any, if ever I get into a conversation with people about Colin Farrell and they say, "Oh, I don't like anything he does," I'm like, "Have you seen In Bruges?" Yeah, because you can't see that and not like Colin Farrell. <laughs> That's honestly the movie that made me like him. <laughs> <laughs> one of my fantasy movies that I thought about, and I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me on this, but I think The Lost Boys would be kind of cool to remake. Huh? I think it doesn't. I think it doesn't carry over well because it's so 80s. Yeah. It's very 80s, yeah. It's very 80s, especially that singer. Do you remember that big muscular singer with the mm-hmm, mullet? With the saxophone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it's like, I feel very conflicted on it. Like, I would love to see a really great new Lost Boys, because I think if somebody redid it and made their own spin on it, didn't try to copy it frame by frame, that mm-hmm. it could be, you know, it could be a really fun, like, gothic vampire film. I could totally see that. Right. But... Part of what makes The Lost Boys so amazing is some of the personalities and the chemistry in it. Hmm. You know, the Corys and Kiefer Sutherland, like there's some really strong mm-hmm. personalities in that film that I'm not sure who you would replace them with. That's a good point. Hmm. Kiefer Sutherland especially. I think he was like, he for me, he was the original like sexy vampire. <laughs> you know, the bad boy on the motorcycle. And he was it's such a like attitude about everybody else. Like, meh. I'm the only cool vampire here. <laughs> That'd be yeah. cool. Also, what do you think about uh, what do you think about a never-ending story remake? No, I don't think I could be on board with that. <laughs> I knew somebody no. was going to say that. <laughs> Is that one you would want to see? I have a lot of nostalgia attached to that movie. I really do, but I think it would be interesting to see it. Like, imagine Guillermo del Toro redoing Never-ending Story. Oh, dang. Okay. I'd watch that. Yeah. You're, th- you're throwing a wrench into my opinions here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is right up his alley. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Scary creatures, children, fantasy world with real life trauma and... Terrible mm-hmm. tragedies that you just yep. never get over into adulthood. I think he would so do it well. I don't know who else would do it well, but I think he would do- <laughs> We said fantasy, so that's my fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we were talking earlier about the and this kind of makes me think of this never ending story about how little there is in the way of like children's horror now. Mm-hmm. I know that for sure when Jackie and I were growing up, I think largely this is to do with uh, what's his name? Um, puppets. Uh, uh, Jim I'm, Henson. Thank you. I'm brain farting. Jim Henson did a lot of like what you would consider children's horror, you know, like the labyrinth, labyrinth and, and yeah, dark the dark crystal. crystal. Yeah. Oh, jinx. 
<laughs> but you don't see a lot of that now, you know, children, like scary stuff. One of the last ones I saw that I, I'm reminded of, and I'm going to say this to defend Tim Burton for a moment, mm-hmm. um, was Nine, the animated movie. I love Nine. Oh, I didn't see that. Which I absolutely love. And Max has fallen in love with it, too. So he watches it all the time. I think maybe he only produced that one. Yeah, I think he was a producer on it. Yeah. Yeah, he's a producer on it. I'd like to see Neil Gaiman do more children's scary stories like Coraline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm I'm pretty sure he came out with a book fairly recently of scary stories. Fortunately, The Milk, too. Yeah. 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 Coraline is a favorite in my house. We watch that one a lot, along with Nine, (laughs) (laughs) which just blows me away that my three-year-old likes to watch Nine because it's an incredibly dark, heavy, sad movie. (laughs) He just loves it. (laughs) (laughs) What's the... Oh, Revelations. (laughs) Uh, Ryan just told me, so the the Hellraiser that had the really terrible pinhead was called Revelations. Okay. (laughs) He refers to him as Doughy Pinhead. (laughs) Exactly what it looked like. Just this like swollen lazy mumbly pinhead it was terrible we have a children's book in my house by neil gaiman i actually don't even know if it's supposed to be a children's book it looks like a children's book and so i bought it for my child but it's really scary and it's called the dangerous alphabet it's got these really beautiful incredible illustrations it's an alphabet so you go through the whole alphabet here but the the entire story is basically about children being stolen and whisked away to the sewers oh, no. by like scary, scary creatures. Some of them appear to be baking the children into pies. No. And then there's this like scary old man with his arms like chained up to pens and writing the story of the children being kidnapped. And there's like illustrations of kids in cages like screaming for their lives and hanging off of boats and it's really terrifying (laughs) we've read it a few times and you get like halfway through the book and we're just kind of oh i don't know if this like is this okay to read to you i don't know (laughs) are (laughs) we scarring you for life (laughs) it seems like like kids have a different sense of horror than uh than adults Uh do and actually there's a an image floating around the internet right now uh just getting viral every damn where um of neil gaiman specifically talking about Coraline and how um a lot of people have said that you know Coraline is terrifying and how can they show this to children this isn't a kid's story but kids actually see it as an adventure whereas adults see it as terrifying i think that's absolutely true a lot of the time Mm -hmm. but i can tell you for my personal experience in reading the dangerous alphabet with my son he always gets this sort of look over his face like he like he's trying to understand what's happening and then he'll start pointing things out and asking me like what is that why is that why is the little girl over there and and we realized halfway through the book that he always wanted to know where the hero was like where's the hero where's the guy who saves them he's very concerned from page to page that the hero's still there and like things are going to be okay yeah one of the few books I've ever read with him that I could tell he was gen- he was you know genuinely unsettled by it and like I don't know and he we read books about zombies with him he loves zombie books but this book just really unsettled him in a, in a different sort of way and he he could see that there were things that were particularly dark and dreadful and in a in a new way that he hadn't really experienced at his age. I think it's really interesting to see how different kids process horror things like that. Like your mm-hmm. your son, he's three, he said, and he's yeah. all about zombies. Yeah. And when I ran the zombie walk, we had tons of kids that would show up and be just all into these zombies thing. But then I have uh, my friend Martha has this kid, Silas, who's like one of the coolest children ever in the world. But when he was younger, like I want to say he was probably five or six, she asked him, um, what do you wish 
never happen. And he said, I wish I never learned that zombies were a thing. And he was just like straight up terrified, Aww. absolutely terrified that zombies exist at all. And it's it's kind of adorable. But yeah, it's it's interesting that I mean, obviously, different people are going to have different fears. But it's interesting to me the way children interpret those various horror aspects. Max is obsessed with zombies right now. To his teacher actually just told me today at school that he keeps talking about zombies at school. He's in day- <laughs> he's in daycare. Like she said, yeah, he keeps walking around going brains. <laughs> <laughs> He's been making me play like Plants vs. Zombies. He s- sits mm-hmm. with Ryan and they play uh they play Rising Dead. Or is it Rising Dead? Am I saying that wrong? Dead, Dead Rising. Dead Rising. Dead Rising. They play that together, which, you know, is to me is a little violent. It's like you're just chopping and shooting, but he loves it. He sits there and he just goes, There's a zombie, there's a zombie, there's a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think we've watched things we've watched things that were um I can't, there was a, there's a children's animated film about a haunted house that seems really silly and not that scary to me. Is it called Monster House? Yes. It's adorable. We got about five minutes into it and he said, this is too scary for me. Huh. And he he couldn't watch it. I'm like, it's just a house. Oh, so weird. That one, uh, I think Dan Harmon wrote that movie. Really? Really? Yeah. I would never have guessed that. Very cool there. Well, back to our discussion about remakes here. Anything else you guys want to add? Yeah, I'd want to see um, Pinhead and, like, I don't even necessarily need it to be about Pinhead. I just want, like, all of the lore behind all those guys. I don't know. I don't know if it would necessarily be the same story retold or if it would be, because there's, you know, I feel like there's so much media there that they could pull from. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what I would want it to be about. You could definitely build on the world to make yeah. a new story out of it. It's a pretty rich mm-hmm. world. Yeah. I wouldn't mind meeting some other Cenobites. Yeah, right? Well, maybe not meeting them, just seeing them in a movie. <laughs> I'd rather not meet them. <laughs> well, ones we haven't really talked about that are on our um, best and worst list here. On our worst, uh, House of Wax. Man, that was bad. <laughs> Except for the ending when they burn everything to the ground. Yeah. No one because got- you're like, finally it's over? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from a special effects angle, it was actually pretty cool. But <laughs> that was it. That was pretty much it there. Um, or on our uh, best list here, we have The Fly, which I actually didn't know was a remake until the other day. The, oh, you didn't? Yeah, The no. Fly is definitely one of the best remakes ever. Yeah. Have and you seen ha- Have you seen any pictures of the original? No, I don't think so. It's it, it's the, it the original. It's the original Fly when he's transforming into the Fly. Think like like shiny bug eyes and like oh, fly no. like fly hair and <laughs> yeah. He oh, liter- <laughs> literally looks like a fly. He does not that, look like a man turning into a fly. <laughs> that's definitely a case where it can uh, imp- it could be better improved upon with uh, better special effects, modern day special effects. It's a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. um, invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a very good one. I've never seen Maniac. I don't. I don't know what Maniac is. There is that the Elijah Wood movie. I, I think it might be. I I started watching it, um, and oh, it's bloody. It is. It's real bloody. I was just not in the right mood to watch it, but it was on Netflix for a while. I'm not sure if it's still on there. Right on. It's got 49% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oof. That's not good. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a good sign. (laughs) Not a good sign at all. Um, I remember correctly, he was really good in it. I don't know if anybody else was really good, but he was surprisingly convincing serial killer. Well, cool. Anything else you guys want to add to our uh, our list and our discussion there? 
I don't think so. We've we've gone pretty deep into it. Yeah, we have thoroughly covered the world of remakes here. Past, present, and future fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think we had any uh, social media questions or comments specifically on this, but we, I We do... did. We did actually oh, have did? one. Yep. Uh, give me just a second. I had it up here from one of our regular listeners who often sends us comments and questions, uh, Samuel Moon. Yeah. And on Facebook, he remarked that... He loves uh, Evil Dead, The Fly, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, and The Thing from 1982. We talked about a lot of those. Yeah, we talked about a lot of them. And he hates Nightmare on Elm Street, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw 3D, Poltergeist. (laughs) I didn't know there was a Texas Chainsaw 3D. I didn't know. That sounds terrible. (laughs) Poltergeist, Prom Night, The Fog, and The Thing from 2011. (laughs) Uh-huh. And then he places Halloween from 2007 somewhere in between. Well, Samuel, it sounds like uh, we all have some similar tastes to you there. Yeah, Halloween was a, is a weird one, too. I don't know about you guys. I, to me, it just felt like another Rob Zombie. Yeah. Didn't feel like uh-huh. a Halloween film to me. Yeah. It seemed like an unnecessary remake, in my opinion. But cool. Uh, anytime uh, we are doing a uh, topic like this, we always go to our social media and ask what uh, your opinions are. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, we will always address them on air here. So if you want to chime into anything that we're talking about, just keep an eye on our Twitter and Facebook and uh, just post your comments. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We love engaging with all of you that uh, listen here, and we are absolutely thrilled by the uh, support and encouragement that we've been getting. And if you love listening to us, please don't forget to rate and review us. Mm-hmm. Big time. And if you've been listening to us on your uh, various sites that, you know, just play the podcast itself and not go to our website, we do always post links to uh, recommendations, music, all of that on the actual website. So if you're missing anything and you want to find out, wait, who wrote that book? Go to our website and you'll see. And the Sirens of Scream is a member of the Mega Nerd Media family. Visit meganerdmedia.com for geek-related columns, reviews, interviews, and videos. You can reach us via email at sos at meganerdmedia.com and on Twitter at Sirens of Scream. Melissa, where can our listeners find you? You can find me at Lissa Punch on Twitter and Instagram. And Sierra? I'm at Sierra Houck, H-O-U-K, on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all that stuff. And uh, by the way, Sierra has been handling our uh, Sirens of Screen Tumblr page, which is incredible. If you haven't already seen it, do check it out. And I am Jackie the Robot on Twitter and Instagram. And that wraps up this episode. So next time we'll be talking about Harrow County. And Melissa, who's our special guest for that? We have a special guest, uh, a good friend of mine named Drew Van Genderen. And he is the host of the For the Love of Indie podcast. Uh, another big comic book fan, so he's going to help us talk about the uh, Harrow County, which is another Colin Bunn comic book series. Sounds rad. And see you guys then. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there. Feeling unknown and you're all alone Flesh and bone by the telephone Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer 
take second best, put me to the test. Things on your chest, you need to confess. I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch faith. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers. Someone who cares. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers. Someone to care. Feeling unknown and you're all alone Flesh and bone by the telephone Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver Reach out and touch faith Reach out and touch faith Reach out and touch faith Reach out and touch faith